Hello and welcome to another edition of Todd Talks Bible. This engaging discipleship-based Bible study is sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. And our teacher is Todd Tolles, the founder and director of CDM. A career firefighter captain before entering the ministry, Todd founded Church Discipleship Ministries to equip and empower believers to fulfill your calling to be a spiritual warrior dedicated to fulfilling the Great Commission. Let's listen in now as Todd Talks Bible. Hi, brothers and sisters. My name is Todd Tolles, and I'm the director of Church Discipleship Ministries, and I want to welcome you to our discipleship program, Todd Talks Bible. We're studying the book of Revelation, and we're fixing to start in chapter 2, verse 1, and get into the study of the seven Asian churches. If you remember correctly, the outline that we're following for the book of Revelation is that the beginning is the end, the middle is the day, and the end is the beginning. So we're in the first part. The beginning is the end, or the end of the church age. And so we will be studying these seven churches as part of that being the focus. Now, when people study these seven churches, there's three different main theories about how you should interpret them. The first one is that you should just look for how these are talking about specific churches and specific sins that were going on in the days of John, the Apostle John who wrote this epistle and sent it to the seven churches this prophetic book called that we call Revelation. Now, that is a valid theory. A second theory is that the churches form kind of a panorama of the history of the church throughout the last 2,000 years. And that also is a valid theory. And then the third theory is that we should just look at it for how we can apply it to our lives as believers today. And that also is a valid theory. So which one is it? Well, personally, I think it's all three. I mean, let's face it. We already studied in John chapter, I mean, Revelation chapter one, that Jesus told John to record what he saw and what he was fixing to see and send it to the seven churches. So Jesus is dictating these messages to these churches. So they obviously have things they need to work on. These real churches that existed in John's day. But all you have to do is read these verses in the chapters 2 and chapters 3, and you will see that these passages of the seven churches easily can follow a timeline of the history of the church for the last 2,000 years. You know, Revelation really isn't that hard to understand. It really isn't. If you'll just open your eyes and take it for face value as you read it. And when you do so, it's real easy, if you know anything about the church history, to see how it does give a kind of a panoramic view of the history of the church for the last 2,000 years, or until Christ comes back, really. Now, the third application. Can we apply these uh, churches and the sins and the truths that we learn from these churches to our lives today? Absolutely. And that's a very valid theory for interpreting these passages. I mean, think about it. These were real Christians in real churches in John's day. And they faced the same temptations and sins that we do today. So we absolutely can apply what we learn to our lives today. So it's all three theories, really. And we're going to look at it in that point of view. We will look at what John was teaching to the original church 
how it fits into the uh, span of history of the church for the last 2,000 years, and we will also see how we can apply it to our own individual lives as churches today, especially as Christians in the American church. So let's dive right in. Ephesians 2, starting, excuse me, not Ephesians, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, but it's talking about the Ephesian church, the church at Ephesus. Let's get started in verse 1. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered from me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen from your first love. Turn back to me again and work as you did at first. If you don't, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But there is this that you have good. You hate the deeds of the immoral Nicolaitans just as I do. Anyone who is willing should excuse me, anyone who is willing to hear should listen to the Spirit and understand what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Everyone who is victorious will eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Now, as far as where this church message, the message to the church of Ephesus falls in church history, since this is the first one, it's pretty easy to figure out. This is talking about the early church, which from our standpoint would basically be the entire first century. You know, from the Gospels explaining the birth of Christ all the way to the end of the century, year 100. So uh, I know most people say, wait a minute, the church wasn't born until after Jesus died on the cross and rose again, and then, you know, 50 days later at the Feast of Pentecost. Yes, that's true. Uh, so if you want to be precise and say, you know, 30 to 33 AD to the end of the century, feel free to. But I kind of am bad with dates, so I just kind of like to round off the nearest century, and that's how we'll do it. This first period, the early church covers basically the first century, all through up and up to the year 100. Now let's look at this imagery to make sure we're on the same page with that. This is, it says in verse 1, this message is from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Well, if you remember, about three sessions ago, we looked at Revelation chapter 1. And let's go back and read in verse 13. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was the Son of Man. All right, so here is uh, John's vision of Jesus. He is there in his glorified body, and he's standing in the middle of the lampstands. Uh, and this lampstand is basically kind of like the menorah was, a large menorah similar to the candle labra that was in the temple. And it would have seven arms to it, and each arm had a separate oil lamp on it. So it was a, you know, seven lamps on this one large candelabra is what we would call it today. Kind of looked like the menorah. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. 
and his face was as bright as the sun and all its brilliance. Now let's get down to verse 19 of chapter 1. Uh, verse 20, I should say, This is the meaning of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the seven lamps in on this candelabra, each one represents a different church. Now the seven stars represent the angels of the seven churches. Now this word angel could be two different things. It could be a real angel. Remember, when we were thinking about uh, the spiritual war, we talked about how there is a spiritual dimension of angels and demons and, and that Christians need to be aware of their 100% of their reality, not just half of it, the physical world, but we also need to be aware of the other half of our reality, the spiritual world. Both the physical and spiritual world makes up our full reality. And so, yes, there are probably angels that are giving assignments uh, to help watch over different Christians uh, or churches or whatever. And yes, the Bible does teach that there's guardian angels protecting those who are believers, especially those who are young until they can believe in Jesus. God knows who they're going to be, and he protects them until the day that they can make that affirmation and accept Jesus as their Savior. And the Bible kind of indicates that they're, they're continuing uh, to protect different people. So, yes, the angels are being used by God to help us in the spiritual world. So it could very well be a real angel. But it also could be referring in a metaphorical sense to the pastor or the leader of each church, because that would be the one that has to read this letter to the church. When John sends it, he would send it to the head of each church, the pastor, or, or back then they would probably call it the elder of the church, and he or she would read this letter to the people in their church. So it could mean both. It probably does. So that's the what it's talking about with the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands. It's obviously saying this letter is from Jesus. Verse 2, he starts off telling some good things about the church. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. So this seems to be a very solid church. I mean, they uh, don't tolerate evil, so they're trying to live a holy lifestyle. They uh, endure patiently what's going on in their life. They don't quit when they're being persecuted. They don't walk away from the faith. And they examine people who are claiming to be apostles but are not. In other words, false teachers. They examine the claims of false teachers and they compare it to the word and say, no, this is wrong. So they're holding people accountable. They are refusing to allow false doctrine to come into their churches. So the church of Ephesus seems to be a pretty good church. You know, Bible-believing church, a solid church. But look at verse 3. Oh, excuse me, verse 4. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen from your first love. Wow. Jesus says they have left their first love. Now think about that. 
What does it mean to leave your first love? Well, if you're married or have ever been in love with someone, think back to those early days when you couldn't get enough of your mate. You couldn't get enough of the person you were in love with. You wanted to be with them as much as possible. You went out every night that you could. You would call them up on the nights you couldn't. You talked all the time and texted, all those kind of things. You were stayed in touch and connected to them as much as possible. And then think about going to some restaurants and uh, maybe you've experienced this too. I know I have. I like to watch people in restaurants back when we could go to restaurants a lot before the COVID shut down. And I would sit and watch some older couples. And I'd be surprised how they'd come in, sit down, and I'd watch them. And they wouldn't say a word to each other all through the meal. And then they'd get up and leave. Now, when you see a couple that does that, that couple has left their first love with each other. They have allowed their excitement, their passion for each other to be cooled off. And yes, they're committed to each other and they still love each other in the sense of unconditional love. They'll probably never get divorced. They, you know, they've probably been married 40, 50 years by the looks of their age, but their excitement is gone and they don't have that same passionate feeling for each other as they did when they first started dating. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. You see, we as Christians, sometimes we get caught up in all the cares and toils of the world and we leave our first love. Jesus becomes smaller and smaller part of our life. When we first get saved, you know, especially if you get saved as an adult, it's all you can think about. You want to let your friends and family know everything you've been learning about Jesus. And you want to tell your friends about it uh, so that they too can experience salvation and go to heaven. And you are just eating the word and, you know, drinking in through your prayers, the power of the Holy Spirit. And you're studying and, and you're getting on fire on a daily basis, committed and you want to be with Jesus and communicate with him constantly. And this is your focus. But as the years go by and you compromise more and more in your schedule with the events of the world, what happens? You start to cool off. And maybe even you quit going to church and then you really start to cool off. And your passion for Jesus is just not the same. You're still know the Bible. You're still a Bible-believing Christian, and you question the false teachers, and you're not getting fooled by all the false heresies or the false teachings that are going on today, but you don't have the same passion for Jesus as you used to. You know, that especially concerns me during this COVID-19 shutdown. I see as a general trend for the last several years, Christians going to church less and less and less. And like I said in one of our earlier episodes, the national standard now is if you go once a month, you're considered a regular attender of church, which of course is poppycock. A, a believer that's going regularly is showing up, you know, twice a week at least, Wednesdays, Sundays, maybe more. But all of it has been slowly declining. And now with the COVID shutdown, many churches are still not meeting. And those that are just meeting uh, in an abbreviated schedule. And so it's becoming easier and easier to not go to church. 
And I remember a Sunday school teacher explained to me how that is very dangerous. We were all camped out on a campfire, and he took a stick and knocked out some of the coals away from the campfire. He said, and he didn't say anything. He just knocked them out, and they kept talking. Well, about 30 minutes later, he went over there and pointed to those coals, and he was able to pick them up. They had cooled off so much. And he says, this is what happens to a Christian. When they stay out of church, when they're not around other Christians, they start to cool off even faster. But if they are there with the other coals, with the other Christians, they can help each other stay on fire. Just like these coals, when they're in the fire, the heat of each of the coals builds up on the other ones and keeps the fire going and self-sustaining. And that's the way it is with Christians. If we separate from the church, we will start cooling off with our passion of Jesus, and we eventually will harden our hearts to the point and leave the faith. That's why Jesus gives them a, a very stout and strong warning here. In verse 5, it says, Look how far you have fallen from your first love. Turn back to me again and work as you did at first. If you don't, I will come and remove your lampstand from among its place among the churches. You know, if a church starts to decline, getting a hard heart and not having that passion for Christ like they did before, they will decline. And this church, Ephesus, this is the same church that the Apostle Paul uh, wrote the book of Ephesians to. This is the same church that has just the dynamic beginning in the book of Acts, if you read about it, that, uh, that they ha had a huge spiritual war going and fought against uh, a lot of the demonic activity. This is the same church that there was so much going on that uh, the seven sons of Sceva, if you remember that story, were trying to cast out demons in the name of Paul and Jesus. And the demon said something very interesting. He said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And he tore off their clothes and beat them up badly. Well, that demon-possessed person said something that kind of is a good example. See, this church in Ephesus was so on fire that the, in the spiritual world, the demons were beginning to take note of what was happening. But as the years went on, things got cold for them. I mean, think about it. This church helped reach all of Asia. The apostle John later on became a pastor at this church, and it was spreading the gospel all through Asia. But as the years went by, it started cooling off. John gets arrested and is put on exile in Patmos, and then things are declining and cooling off. And where is that church today? It's not around. They cooled off so much that Christ removed their candlestick from the candelabra. He removed their light, their impact from the lampstand. In other words, it closed down. And Jesus will do that today. I'm telling you, if churches don't wake up, if Christians don't wake up, and we keep having this cool-hearted attitude towards Christ, and we still let this our passion die and, and eventually just ebb away. I'm telling you, those churches that continue to do that and have no impact on their society, they will start shutting down at even a faster rate than is going on now. A lot of these mega churches will end up shutting down and shutting the doors permanently because this shutdown during COVID 
has been affecting them so badly. And it happened in Europe, and it's going to happen here. If we don't start trying to quicken our hearts again and get our passion on fire again for Jesus, if we don't fall in love with Jesus again like we were at first, I'm telling you, we will be disciplined by the Lord in America. The churches in America will be disciplined if we don't wake up and seek that passionate commitment to him like we had at first. Now, in verse 6, he goes back to telling them something good. He said this, But there is something about you that is good. You hate the deeds of the immoral Nicolaitans, just as I do. Now, this is really strong words. You hate the deeds of the immoral Nicolaitans, just as I do. Who were the Nicolaitans? Well, now you'll have several theories out there. And if you have a, a study Bible, you might read down in the little notes section. And most study Bibles say, we think this was a group of people that said you could live uh, unrighteous lives and, 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 and not worry about it uh, as a Christian. In other words, you could still uh, go to the uh, um, orgies that were there at the temple of Diana or Artemis, depending, you know, the Greeks called it. Artemis, the Romans, Diana, but it was this huge temple, and it was uh, centered around a lot of sexual orgies there, temple prostitutes, and there was a philosophy going around in the day that you could live any way you wanted to in the world, and some Bibles, you know, study Bibles, and some theologians say that was the group it was talking about, and that, yeah, possibly, but I, I don't think so, and I'll tell you why. There is a strong uh, body of work from the 1940s through the 1960s of Bible scholars who look at this slightly different. And they look at the Greek word for Nicolaitans. It's actually a compound word. Um, and the first one is Nikoa, and that means to conquer. Nico, Nikoa means to conquer. And then Laos. Laos, this part of the compound word means people. And it's actually the word that we get the word laity from. And so this compound word literally means to conquer the people or to conquer the laity. And a lot of biblical scholars from uh, J. Vernon McGee to uh, Dr. Lehman Strauss and many others during the 40s, 50s, and 60s, maybe even the early 70s, have some great body of evidence that this is talking more than just worldly Christians, sinful Christians who are trying to participate in these idolatrous orgies and things. In fact, they got excellent evidence that it's talking about people who believed in a clerical hierarchy. And I kind of think they're on the right track. I think that's what it's referring to. Because look how he says that he hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, when you read the Gospels, you never see Jesus getting mad at any of the immoral people, whether it be prostitutes or tax gatherers or whatever. He showed them compassion and showed them grace. And when they believed in him, he was saying to them, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. And that's the way it is with God and our sins. God never rejects us for our sins. The whole reason Jesus died on the cross and rose again on the third day is so that God could accept us 
and forgive our sins. And, and Jesus paid the price for our sins. And nowhere in there does it say that God hates us. No. But if you do read the Gospels, there's one group of people that Jesus always butted heads with. And that was the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This was a group of religious leaders that had set themselves above the rest of the people. In a sense, they had conquered the people. They were their people's rulers. They ruled the people or the laity. And so they were setting themselves up as a higher level of a godly person. And they were saying, you have to follow us. We are your uh, in-between you know, before God and you. We are your mediator. And of course, there's only one mediator, and that's Christ. And if you read Matthew 23, you're going to see some very strong words in it against the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. Very similar to this. This is the passage in Matthew 23 where he declares the, the multiple woes. It's like eight, seven or eight woes where he says, Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. And he says all this stuff because of their attitude of setting themselves above the people. In Matthew 23, if you read it, it says that we should not even allow anybody to call us rabbi or pastors. We should not allow that because we are not above anybody. We are all equal as brothers and sisters. Now, we're going to talk more about the Nicolaitans later and how this philosophy has worked its way into the church. Remember, the last two sessions, we spent a lot of time on the spiritual war. Well, this here is a tactic that Satan used from the very beginning to start planting seeds of false doctrine within the church. And it is the theory that there is a clerical hierarchy that pastors or priests are a little bit above the rest of the people, the laity. We're up here and the laity's down here. And that's totally abhorrent to what Christ taught. Christ hates that. And he spent many passages in the New Testament talking about how we were all equal as brothers and sisters and how we should never lord ourselves over someone else. And we'll talk more about this later after we go through some of the other churches. But I want you to think that this is a very serious problem that, you know, that was in the churches. And it's good that the church of Ephesus was fighting against this. Jesus was kind of happy with that. Now you may say, Todd, you're sitting here and saying that this is the first century church, the early church, and they've already had this bad doctrine in it. I just don't see how that could have happened so fast. Well, I, I get what you're saying. I get it. I mean, it sounds almost shocking that the church could have declined and gotten into this bad philosophy so quickly, doesn't it? But let me show you something. This here is a copy of, uh, it's my first volume of a, a set of books I have about the early church fathers. It's of 38 volumes in this, this book series. And it fills up two shelves on my bookshelf behind me. And this is, uh, the first part is the anti-Nicene fathers, then you have the Nicene fathers, and then you have the post-Nicene. And it's a total of 38 volumes. And my lovely wife bought this set for me so I could study it because I wanted to see how some of the heresies we're experiencing today in the church, when did they first start cropping up? And I want to tell you, I didn't get too far at all, even in this first volume, before I started seeing heresies. 
And this is from some of the anti-Nicene uh, church fathers, all the way back to you know the year 100, 130, very early in the church history. I mean, even Clement, who wrote some of the first ones, and he was in the first century, um, some of the, his writings are beginning to plant the seeds that there's this hierarchy of the elders or the pastors above the rest of the people. So the, the, the heresies that are in the church today, they started off very soon. And so, yes, you can see how even Jesus is concerned about this part of the, this heresy of the Nicolaitans being planted in the churches. And it kind of reminds us of the parable of the, uh, so, of the, of the enemy. Remember, and the farmer. We talked about that last session where a farmer planted a field and the enemy came and planted weeds in it. Well, that's what's going on here. And But he praises the church of Ephesus because they are making a stand against the Nicolaitans. They hate the deeds of those who are trying to say there's a church hierarchy because there's not. And he brags on them for doing that and fighting against that false teaching. Now, so really what he's upset with them about is that one thing. They left their first love and they have no passion for Christ like they used to. Let's go on. Let's read in verse 7. Anyone who is willing to hear should listen to the Spirit and understand what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Everyone who is victorious will eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Now, this is interesting because he said if you didn't listen and didn't repent and start, uh, you know, putting that fire, kindling that fire again in your heart of that passionate fire for him again, that he would close down that church, remove that church from the candelabra, and they would no longer have an impact in the world. But here he is saying, if you do listen and you repent and you change and you kindle again that fire in your hearts, in other words, if you do listen and become victorious, you will eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. You see, the tree of life is the same tree that was in the garden from the very beginning. There was two trees, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which he told us not to eat of, but we disobeyed and did. And now all we know is tainted with evil. But then there's the tree of life. And evidently, as we'll see later on in Revelation, this tree of life is going to be in the new heaven and new earth. But it's also speaking in a metaphorical sense. You see, there's really no real life unless you have a passionate relationship with Jesus. Now, I've been a firefighter for 23 years in my career, and I've taught in churches, and I've been a Christian for roughly 50 years now. And I want to tell you something. I've been ran over by cars as a teenager. Uh, that's a story in itself. I won't get into it. I have been burned up in house fires. I have gone through a lot of bad times, but a lot of good times. I've had an exciting life. But I want to tell you something. Nothing, nothing is more exciting than having a passionate relationship with Christ and having that passionate relationship of serving Christ by spreading the gospel to others, teaching others the Bible. There's nothing more exciting to me. You're talking about having the essence of life, to get the marrow of life, I want to tell you, the only way to have real life, the only way to have that passionate, exciting life is having a passionate relationship with Christ. 
Are you bored because of the shutdown? Is your life the same thing in day in and day out? And are you bored with it? I want to tell you, brother, I want to tell you, sister, the solution is to start developing a passionate relationship with the Lord Jesus. And when you have that passion and it burns in your belly like fire and you spread the gospel and you are focused solely on him and him as your first priority, then you're going to have an exciting life. Some people would think being a firefighter and going into burning buildings was exciting, and it was. But nothing is exciting as being close to Jesus and having that passionate relationship and serving him by spreading the gospel. It's the best thing in life. It is real life. And that's what Jesus meant by those who try and hold on their life will lose it. But those who lose their life, in other words, just give it over to God and do put God first, they'll find real life. And I found real life because I serve God. And I want that for you. And that's what the American church needs to get back on fire in a passionate relationship with Jesus. Wow. Good stuff, huh? Well, I'm looking forward to going through the rest of the churches with you, and I hope you'll join us for every session. But in the meantime, be sure to look at yourself and make sure you haven't left your first love with Christ. And until next time, Keep your eyes to the sky and read your Bible. Thank you for listening to Todd Talks Bible, sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. For more information, please visit churchdiscipleshipministries.com or check today's show notes for the link. Our teachings are also available on YouTube. Simply search for Todd Talks Bible. I'm Brian Race, encouraging you to subscribe to this podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Also consider sharing this timely teaching with someone you believe needs to hear it. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.